Hello and welcome to episode 350 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from North London is a double murder, which is so shocking and upsetting on so many levels, and also leaves so many questions unanswered. But before we get there, you'll be devastated to hear that I've managed to fight off the hordes of advertisers for another week. So just before we start our story, let's get some context with our guest the month and year game. In the UK music charts, in the top spot was Rockstar from Dababy, Dababy, featuring Roddy Rich. In the US, it was Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande with Rain On Me. And in Australia, the best-selling album this week was Chromatica from Lady Gaga. In the news this month, it was dark times for so many of us with COVID spreading rapidly. And this month, the UK death toll from COVID-19 past 50,000, according to the Office of National Statistics. The Black Lives Matter protests continued worldwide in large numbers, and in Bristol, I'm sure you'll recall, the statue of 17th century slave trader Edward Colston was pulled down. Support for Manchester United player Marcus Rashford and others forced the UK government to make a humiliating U-turn on summer school meal vouchers. In true crime news, 18-year-old Jonty Bravery was jailed for 15 years minimum after throwing a six-year-old boy off a 200-foot balcony at London's Tate Modern Gallery, leaving him with a bleed to the brain and life-changing injuries. And finally, German prosecutors announced this month that they believe that Madeleine McCann is dead and they were investigating a 43-year-old German convicted sex offender identified as Christian B., on suspicion of murder. So did you guess the month and year? It was, of course, June 2020. Did you get it? Today's story comes from Wembley, which is about eight miles northwest of the centre of London and home to the famous stadium, probably best known to you as the scene of the great triumph in 1972 when the mighty league United beat Arsenal 1-0 in the FA Cup final. Two world-class drummers were born in Wembley, Keith Moon of The Who and Charlie Watts of The Rolling Stones. Sir Henry Cooper, the British heavyweight boxing champion, after his fight with Muhammad Ali at Wembley Stadium in 1963, he retired to Wembley where he opened a greengrocer's shop at the top of Ealing Road in Wembley. Call it a hunch, but I can't see Tyson Fury opening a hardware store in Ealing when he retires, can you? Very different times. Okay, so on to the story. Daniel Hussain split his time between his dad's house in Wembley and his mum's house in South East London. Like many 19-year-olds, when we joined the story, Daniel had two main goals in life. Becoming the boyfriend of the girl he liked at school and getting rich. In his case, via the National Lottery. But he wasn't good at getting on with the girls at his mixed comprehensive school in Woolwich, South East London. He was pretty awkward socially, especially with girls. Then in October 2017, teachers found some worrying material he had accessed on school computers, including far-right propaganda. He was referred by his school to the Prevent Anti-Terror Scheme as there were concerns that he was susceptible to being radicalised and vulnerable to violent extremism. He was given support through the Channel the Radicalization Programme 
until May 2018, when no further concerns had come to light. So rather than stay on this scheme, there were just going to be them follow-ups at 6 and 12 months. At the time, Daniel had no plans to go to college or to other forms of education, but instead he was pondering going abroad to a summer camp, perhaps in the US. Then COVID came along and the lockdown, and unknown to his family, Daniel was heavily involved in a demon cult. His dad had long been concerned that his son had fallen into the wrong crowd, but he had no idea just what Daniel had become involved with, and how this attachment to the cult would result in him killing two sisters, Bibba Henry and Nicole Smallman. On the 6th of June 2020, 46-year-old Bibba Henry and her sister, 27-year-old Nicole Smallman, had been at Friant Country Park in Wembley with friends, celebrating Bibba's birthday. The sisters had a great time, and after their friends had left the park, they stayed behind to listen to music and to dance. They were holding fairy lights on this summer's evening. They took photographs as they danced and laughed, enjoying the celebration. But the very last photograph taken at 1.13am shows them looking to their left as if distracted by someone or something. It is likely that this is the moment that Danielle Hussein attacked. It was a frenzied attack with Bibba stabbed eight times, whilst Nicole was stabbed on 28 occasions. It is thought that Bibba was taken by surprise and overpowered first, then Nicole desperately tried to fight off her attacker. Once the two sisters had been brutally murdered, their killer dragged their bodies across the grass and concealed them in a hedgerow. He then fled the scene to his dad's house nearby. When the sisters failed to come home that evening, their friends were worried and some went to the park to look for them. The police were called when the glasses of both women were found on the grass not far from a knife. One friend, a friend of the sisters, was still on the phone to the police when he made the awful discovery of their dead bodies. Their mum, Mina Smallman, would later produce the following statement. In June 2020, Bibba's birthday, I knew she had planned an outdoor party with her friends. Bibba, being the responsible person that she was, had chosen to have a very small gathering in an outside place where people would be safe. I know she chose that venue because the plan was that they would watch the sunset together. Bibba and Nikki loved music and regularly attended festivals. The purpose of the birthday celebration was to have a mini festival, which is why she planned and organised it the way she did. Bibba was a details person, hence the cushions, blankets and table mats. The weather had been very unpredictable that week, and what often goes through my mind is if it had been raining on that Friday, they wouldn't have been there, and this nightmare would never have happened to our family, and our precious girls would still be here today. I was instantly concerned when Bibba and Nicole had failed to get in touch with their friends and family after the party. This was so unusual and not like them at all. On the Sunday morning, I woke up stressed. I phoned their friend Adam and asked if he'd heard anything, and he said no. At 8am, I phoned my friend who was ex-CID and left a voicemail. My friends could hear the worry and concern in my voice, so they immediately called me back and began talking us through the process of a missing person's search. We had to establish who was at the party. 
I contacted my niece Joanne and asked her for the contact details of Biba and Nicole's friends. She sent out a message on Facebook and asked the ones who were at the party to call me. I was aware that family and friends had launched their own search party and they were going back to the park where their birthday party had been held. Nina told me that she'd found a pair of Biba's glasses. At that point, I was just thinking that Biba must have dropped her glasses, but I was still very concerned that we'd had no contact from either of them. I didn't allow myself to think of the worst. In that situation, you can't. You just go into mum mode. Adam rang me and told me they'd found a knife. I was on the phone to my ex-CID friend and he told me to tell them to get off the crime scene. That was when it hit me that something very serious was happening. I was sat in my living room at home when Adam called me again. He said, Mina, I'm going to need you to sit down. We've found them. They've gone. I instantly fell to my knees and began screaming, screaming, screaming. I sobbed for ages. I've no idea how long for. I lost all concept of time. I was all alone. No one expects their children to die before them. But to have two out of three of your children be murdered on the same night is just incomprehensible. As a person of faith, a follower of Christ, losing two of my girls in this way could have been enough to shake a person's faith. Fortunately, it didn't. You never want to imagine how the girls looked. I was so worried about Adam. He can't unsee what he saw that day. We visited Adam and his family around the time of us planning the funeral. He was inconsolable. When I saw him, he was skin and bone. I knew he wasn't sleeping and I was very concerned about his welfare. To hear that our girls were dragged across the grass so their clothes were pulled up then placed in some kind of macabre position, it makes you think that this is a person who actually doesn't have a heart. There can be no connection with humanity. There is no medication that can stop the pain. I've lost my firstborn and my baby. They've gone. The hardest thing is that when their sister, my daughter Monique, looks at me, she sees them. And when I look at her, I see them. When she came over from Holland to visit, they would all be there with us. And now we will never have that family time again. Those precious times stolen from us. What isn't missed is the tiniest of details that often bring the most pain. I can never look at an ash tree without seeing my dead girls in my mind's eye. I was told that in Nikki's hand was a little bit of ash tree branch, presumably from when she was fighting for her life from the monster who was attacking her. When we are driving, at any given moment we can pass a wooded area with ash trees and I burst into uncontrollable tears in the car. Detectives immediately knew they were looking for a very dangerous person and appealed widely for anyone to come forward who could help with the inquiry. Detective Chief Inspector Simon Harding, who led the inquiry, did have some clues left behind by the killer. He made media appeals for information about anyone who had cut their hand after a large amount of blood not belonging to the victims was identified. Swabs from the women and the knife produced male DNA, which was labelled unknown one, that unfortunately was not a match for any person on any database. However, by the end of June, the database did produce a familial DNA link. Daniel Hussein's dad had picked up a caution a few years ago 
and this was the match. Detectives discovered that Danielle Hussein was a member of the same family and that his dad lived near the park where the murders took place. The DCI later said, One of my officers deployed to do some research around purchases of knife blocks piped up straight away and said, I've got him buying knives in Asda a couple of days before. CCTV near the house was then examined and it showed Danielle Hussein heading back to his dad's house at about 4am on the night of the murders. Just over an hour later, police raided the home of Danielle's mum in South East London when there, in Danielle's bedroom, they found inside a paper pouch, a pendant chain and some handwritten notes. One of them was addressed to Queen Byleth and signed by Daniel. Queen Byleth is, according to Black Magic, linked to the King of Hell, King Byleth. One side of the paper said the following. My requests. Making the name of a specific girl fall deeply in love with me to the point where she isn't interested sexually nor romantically in anybody but me. To make, again, the same girl believe and see that I'm the only one for her. Make the same girl fall so deeply in love with me where she shows and expresses her love for me, making me more attractive to women romantically. The other side of the sheet read, Queen Byleth, your requests. Every two weeks, burn incense in your name, offer some sweet drink, offer chocolate. Buy more red candles, offer some blood. I agree to uphold the request made and to uphold my side of the agreement. Signed by Danielle. Another handwritten note, signed in his own blood, was found. And this was even more sinister. He'd made a pact with a demon called Lucifuge Rothakal. According to a black magic book, this demon is in charge of hell's government and treasury by order of Lucifer. This note said that he would murder six women every six months in return for financial reward, including winning the Mega Million Super Jackpot, which at this time stood at £321 million. Next to the notes were three lottery tickets. And bank records would show that five Mega Millions bets and one Mega Millions syndicate bet, totaling £17.50, were bought on June the 7th, the day after the murders of Bibber and Nicole. Hussein, who had no previous convictions, told detectives that he was innocent of any crime, he had a bad memory and he suffered from Asperger's syndrome. He said that the cuts on his hand that could still be seen were caused when he was robbed recently. Detectives didn't believe him and he stood trial for the two murders. Hussein pleaded not guilty to murder and refused to give evidence. He claimed that somebody else had written the agreement to sacrifice women for a lottery win and that the blood found at the scene of the crime and the CCTV footage of him buying knives for the attack and heading back to his dad's house wasn't him. The evidence against him was absolutely damning and the QC for the defence summed up the situation very succinctly in his closing remarks, saying, Given the weight of evidence against him, only someone who actually believes that an agreement with a demon will work could refuse to accept any aspect of the case against him. Perhaps he still believes that Lucifuge Rothakal 
will come to his aid. But unfortunately for the defendants, there are no deals to be had in these courts and the devil, if he's anywhere, is in the detail. For Bibber Henry and Nicol Smallman, that night was supposed to be a celebration of life, a birthday party, a night where you reflect on the year you've had and look forward to the year that will be. It was supposed to be an evening of friendship and love, a chance to spend time with those closest to you. And it was supposed to end with both sisters returning home to their loved ones with smiles on their faces and fond memories to look back on. For this defendant, however, the celebration he had planned was quite different. It was a celebration of death, not of life. It was a night of sacrifice and violence, not of shared emotions. And it was the start of his planned campaign of vengeance that would see part of his twisted bargain fulfilled and leave him looking forward to the riches he believed would soon come his way. It's hard to imagine that anyone could do to another human being what this defendant did to Biba and Nicole. But to have planned it, to have prepared it, and to have performed it with such ruthless selfishness is truly terrifying. He did not care what he had to do to get what he wanted, and these two women were nothing more than a means to a very disturbing end. Indeed, the last few minutes of Bibber and Nicole's lives must have been truly terrifying. In court, Hussein showed a complete lack of respect for proceedings and behaved very strangely. After he was found guilty and waiting for sentencing via video link due to COVID, he was seen smirking. He then put his hands behind his head as if lying back on a sun lounger. When the judge began to speak, he turned his chair 90 degrees to the left, so that he was facing the window and away from the judge. During the trial itself, it was the same. He kept asking for toilet breaks. He sat with his back to the judge and stared for long periods of time at the victim's family and female court staff. When the paramedic who was first on the scene after the discovery of the bodies gave evidence, he made an L for loser sign with his fingers. His lawyer, in her closing speech, referred to this, saying, You have seen how he has behaved in court. You may think at times his behaviour has been odd. Please judge him on the evidence, not on his behaviour in court, if you have noticed something out of the ordinary. Sentencing Hussein to 35 years in prison, the judge noted how he had dragged the bodies away and posed them in an embrace to defile them in death. She said, You'd found these two women, you were a stranger to them, you surprised them, you terrified them and you killed them. You committed these vicious attacks, you did it to kill, you did it for money and a misguided pursuit of power. This was a calculated and deliberate course of conduct, planned and carried out with precision. Bizarre though the pact with the devil may appear to others, this was your belief system, your own commitment to the murder of innocent women. Speaking outside court, the sister's mum, Mina, said justice had been done for her beautiful girls. On their killer, she said, he's just an obnoxious human being. He's a broken human being who, if he'd not been caught, four other families may have been suffering what we have. And finally, DCI Simon Harding, the senior investigation officer again, This has been a shocking case that will stay with us all for many years to come. 
not least the awful way in that she's too vibrant women met their deaths, but also Hussein's bizarre deluded fantasies that he should sacrifice the women in exchange for a lottery win. I strongly believe he would have gone on to kill more women if he hadn't injured his hand in such a way that he did when he killed Biba and Nicole. It's very difficult for my team still to this day to comprehend that this 18-year-old boy, as he was at the time, could have carried out such savage attacks. He showed disrespect for everything, for the families, support systems, the process, the police, paramedics, everybody, and the jury. There is one last disturbing aspect to this case. Two police officers, 43-year-old PC Denise Jaffa and 33-year-old PC Jamie Lewis, were charged with misconduct for sharing inappropriate photographs of the crime scene, causing distress to the family and general public. Incredible as it is to believe, these officers actually posed for selfies next to the sisters' dead bodies. They were meant to be guarding them, guarding the crime scene. They then shared these pictures on a WhatsApp group. For this, the two officers were sent to prison for two years and nine months. The two girls' mum again, Mina, she said in a victim impact statement, It made me think of the lynchings in the deep south of the USA, when you would see smiling faces around a hanging dead body. Those police officers felt so safe, so untouchable, that they felt they would take photographs with our murdered daughters. Those police officers dehumanised our children. The three other police officers in the WhatsApp group were given a warning, but allowed to keep their jobs. It's really hard to know what to say about this conduct from this group of officers, isn't it? But I don't think the police help themselves sometimes when they fail to sack these other completely unsuitable officers also in the WhatsApp group at the very, very least. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's just an awful story, isn't it? And it's hard for actually to believe for me that it really happened. But it did. And the family and friends of Biba and Nicole have lived an utter nightmare since. And the detectives, as you've heard, are certain that if Hussein hadn't been caught again, he would have fulfilled his contract with the demon and another four women would have been killed. I'm also left with the concern, and I'm certain that you are too, just how many others like Hussein are out there, weak, vulnerable, easily influenced, and able to kill so freely. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join over 90,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. It's many things, it's never dull. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. There was a bonus episode this week, another one coming later this month, and loads of other exclusive content and competitions. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Paula Razig and Paul Davidson. Your support is much appreciated. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime Surprise for a cup of coffee and cancel any time. Okay, so that's all for me, the host of the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast host and the only podcaster with the freedom of the saunas of Rochdale. So until we speak again next week, thank you again so much for all your comforting words for me 
<laughs> for again missing out on the shortlist for the BBC. Sorry. I mean, The Guardian. Oh, what? Wondery. Oh, what's wrong with me? I meant the British Podcast Awards. <laughs> you got to laugh, haven't you? Well, maybe. Anyway, on that bombshell, please do take it easy. And remember, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.